welcome to another episode of On the Couch with myself, Henry Jennings. And this week, I'm really lucky to be joined by Dr. Leslie Chong, who is the CEO and MD of Imugene, which has a stock code IMU. Now, Leslie has uh, been in the industry for 24 years of oncology experience from phase one to phase three trials. And she was previously senior clinical program lead at GenNTech, uh, which is widely regarded as one of the most successful biotech companies in the world and they sell their best-selling breast cancer drug Herceptin which has uh, been a very very successful and, and Leslie has very kindly agreed to join me on the couch today and, and talk to me about Imugene which has had a, a fantastic rise uh, since Leslie has joined uh, sort of uh, well seven seven years ago I believe it is Leslie so welcome to the couch thanks very much for coming on the show Gosh, thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Oh, you're just saying that. Um, <laughs> but uh, just before we kick off, uh, I just have to remind all our listeners that this is general advice only. So please do your own research, etc. Contact your own financial advisor. And anything that we talk about in this podcast is general advice only. So, Leslie, thank you so much. Imugene, what, uh, what are you guys trying to achieve? What, what's, the, what's this biotech company all about? Well, I think everyone knows that cancer is a scourge on this planet. And I'm sure you've had loved ones, friends and family who have been struck down by this heinous disease. And I too, I've lost my father to it. Um, ironically, the disease that I'm studying specifically, uh, HER2 positive gastric cancer, stomach cancer is exactly what my dad uh, what led to my dad's demise. My mom is a lung cancer survivor and we're also in lung cancer. So to me, this is sort of a personal thing and watching both my parents go through just toxic lines of therapy whilst I was in the business was just quite painful for me. And so when an opportunity came to develop potential uh, efficacy, um, curative, treatment options that resided in cancer vaccines and oncolytic virus. So we already know vaccines and viruses are fairly safe. We've had plenty of data to show that uh, in humans, this is really safe. And so for me to have the honor and an opportunity to develop a cancer vaccine and now an oncolytic viral therapy has been tremendous because we have now seen that we can have an efficacy without that rancid toxicity that cancer therapeutics could have. Wow, I, I, obviously, th I mean, this is a very personal thing. And I, and I think, you know, all of us have been touched by um, by cancer in one way or the other throughout our lives, unfortunately. And it's, it's fantastic to see what you're doing. Um, are there any particular cancers apart from uh, the uh, the stomach, the gastric cancer that you're looking at? Is this sort of a gateway into uh, to a more broader uh, cancer treatment, or is this specifically targeted at one or two cancers? So at Imaging specifically, we're targeting all levels of solid tumors. Um, there's three platforms that we're working on. We have the cancer vaccine, which we call the B-cell immunotherapy platform. We have the oncolytic viral therapies. Um, people are quite familiar because we just had recent news about dose escalation and we're in triple negative breasts as well as a myriad of solid tumors. And then we have this product that we call Oncarlytics. This is an oncolytic viral therapy that expresses a protein on the surface of solid tumors. So this is 
could could be this huge jump in scientific um, scientific know-how and uh, evolution in that we could treat solid tumor into one disease, which has never been done before, and could really change the paradigm of how we can treat all levels of solid tumors that don't necessarily have a marker. Maybe I'm going a little bit ahead of myself. Just to explain to the audience, cancer is a myriad of different diseases. It's not just one. And if it was just one, it would be, you know, we could possibly have some level of proof of concept like we have for uh, HIV. HIV has been relegated into something that was uh, deadly to now more of a chronic disease and hopefully a cure. But with cancer, if you can imagine, it's not just one disease, it's it's thousands, if not millions. So you've got things that are targeted, that things that are signaling uh, that's mutated or it's genetic, or you've got something environmental factor. And so there's a there's several different signatures on a, a tumor. And if you can make that tumor into one disease, such in this case, upregulate a CD19, so it's signaling that it has CD19, and then adding a therapy that's completely targeted towards a CD19 protein, then you but uh, obliterated or erased the idea that you need to have a therapy match with a certain kinds of cancer or signature. So, I'm quite excited about our oncarlytics. I think it's been a nice evolution in imaging history. We started treating it with cancer vaccine very, um, very efficiently and with lots of safety data. We moved on to the oncolytic virus where there's a virus that replicates and only in solid tumors. And then we've evolved it that much more by adding the CD19 target when you can add it to a very powerful therapeutics like CAR-Ts out there to really obliterate um, solid tumors. So it's been a nice evolution here um, at MEG. And you call yourself a platform technology, I guess, in, in terms of oncology. What, what, how, how does a platform technology work uh, for a biotech? So platform simply means that you can recreate that in another form. So with our B-cell immunotherapy, the targets that we've chosen initially were HER2. This is uh, a receptor on a solid tumor that occurs in roughly about 30% of breast cancer, about 20% in gastric. So we created the HER2. And then we thought, well, if we can create a HER2, we can create in the same platform an anti-PD-1. So we did exactly that, where we created a vaccine against the PD-1, which is a immune regulator that we inhibit that allows your immune system to go and attack the tumors. And that platform, within about six months' time, if you can create a target, uh, you can create it. So if you think it, you can create it. And so within six months' time, I mean, that's and that's a true platform play. Along with our oncolytic viral therapy, we change out cassettes, as it were, these transgenes. And so one of our oncolytic viral therapy has a PDL1. You know, if you think about it as a cassette that implodes onto the, uh, to the solid tumor, you can put PD1 in there, you could put LAG3, you could put CD19, and that's exactly what we've done with our oncarlytics, which is another um, platform in that you can put 
proteins or a target or what you want to express on or show up in a cancer cell. So all these, the three platforms can be switched out and made into something new. Mm. Are all this, I mean, this is way above my pay grade in terms of uh, <laughs> technology, so I'm, I'm taking your word for it to some extent. But is this, is this research that you're doing in Australia or is this in the US? Uh, I know that obviously the US is, is the, the massive opportunity and you spend a lot of time there, but is this uh, Australian scientists and, and, and oncologists working on this or is this US? So it's predominantly all over the world. Our oh. invention of HerVax came from Medical University of Vienna. Our PD-1 Vax came from Ohio State University. Both those products are in the U.S. clinics and hospital sites. So we've got oncologists, surgeons, and scientists working on our product with their patients. Um, oncolytic viral therapies were invented out of City of Hope from Professor Yuman Fong and Dr. Saul Priceman. So we have those in Australia. Um, we plan to open up sites, you know, potentially in Europe. So they're usually all over the world. So anyone that has a patient population that can enroll into our clinical trial, we make them collaborate, collaborators and we partner with them. And so these sites and hospitals are all over the world. Our inventors come from just about anywhere. If you've got a beautiful product that looks to be safe and could be equally as efficacious as something else out there already marketed, then I'm very interested in it. So I tend to go everywhere. You'd have a lot of frequent flyer miles then, I would imagine. <laughs> I do. Do you need some? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would, but um, you can't use them anyway at the moment. It's uh, very hard to use them in lots of places. So uh, not so useful. Now, I, I, I see you mentioned uh, City of Hope just a minute ago, and you've done uh, a recent announcement uh, regarding the first patient that you've dosed in the phase one clinical trial at City of Hope. How's that going? How quickly do you uh, hope, uh, if you pardon the, the slight pun, uh, to uh, to enrol more <laughs> patients and get the, get the trial really underway? That's funny that you say that, the word hope. I think to me that is the most promising things about all our, all our technology is that we not only enlist hope, mm. we hope to deliver on that promise of hope. Uh, at City of Hope, our products are actually called um, HOV, which stands for hope oncolytic virus. Okay. Um, so they are these hopeful, beautiful things out there. And you mentioned that we have um, we have dosed uh, our first patient in cohort three. So we've already dosed six patients in the triple negative breast cancer arm. And we have dosed well seven, the seventh patient now. And because we know that our oncolytic viral therapies work quite well uh, in low dose, I'm hoping that in cohort three, we'll see much more activity. So there's hope there. Mm. Uh, we have what we call the vaccinia, and that has dosed across the first cohort of patients. So cohorts are pat three patients in that cohort where we evaluate the safety mm and that particular dose, and then we dose escalate into the second cohort and what have you. What I'm excited about um, is the vaccinia, the vaccinia study. We dose the cohort one patients, and once they go through what's called a dose-limiting toxicity period, we watch if they have any toxicities from our drug, um, we can then count that cohort close and open up the second cohort in a higher dose. But in that particular study, 
we are looking at intravenous setting because we've seen our oncolytic virus to be able to travel. Um, so that upscopal effect. Mm. And we're delighted that we'll be opening up the intravenous study quite soon to look at how our drug can affect the metastatic cancers. Mm. It's, um, it sounds fantastic. How, how quickly, I guess, do you go from phase one to, to phase two? What's the sort of timeline there for, for this sort of trial? Well, in these line of therapies, especially immune therapies, because they are adding so much safety and responses, meaning um, you can see efficacy quite early with the fewer number of patients, the FDA has allowed for a lot of the products to be approved in phase two even. So they call this sort of an adaptive study where you go after a signal. If you see something promising, then you can open it up for more patients. And then in complete agreement with the FDA, then you can actually market the product quite fast. Um, Such as when we had the checkpoint inhibitors, the the old adage of going through phase one phase two, and then a large phase three were sort of thrown out the door because there was such a patient demand for these um, highly uh, efficacious and hopefully safe drugs to be marketed. So you could see it move um, within a few years as opposed to the regular 15 years that it takes to get a, a, to get a cancer drug approved. And you've had some pretty good results from uh, the, the HERVAX trials as well, I believe. Yes, so we're really pleased that our overall survival for our initial phase two study in gastric cancer has read out so well that um, in addition to that, we were able to dose escalate. So meaning um, if you're able to put a lot, we know these drugs work, but it's when toxicities catch Mm. up. And so in that study, we used 50 micrograms and we were able to see pretty good responses in patient. Now, the next two studies that we're going into, we're going to go into 100 microgram, which is almost doubling, not almost doubling the 50 micrograms. So we hope to see antibody production faster, greater, better, which means which will translate into hopefully a faster curative rate for some of these patients. So. As far as looking at um, the, the company from a share price point of view and looking at the next 12 months ahead, are there any sort of milestones that investors should be looking at, looking forward to, that are going to cause uh, an, a catalyst again for uh, for another re-rating? It's already been uh, quite an interesting ride, I guess, this year. It's been interesting for, for many technology companies, whether they're biotech or, um, or normal sort of um, silicon technology companies. Uh, is there any milestones we should be looking at in the next 12 months as, as a gauge and catalyst? Well, we're fortunate that we have such a deep and wide and multiple uh, pipeline items. So within our B-cell immunotherapies with Hervax, you can anticipate that we'll start enrolling patients into some of our studies and still read out the end of the study for Horizon. That's the original phase two study that we just had the overall survival data from. With our PD-1 vax, we're going to go into a combination with uh, an old Genentech um, Roche product that I used to be a part of called Tencentric or Tezoluzumab. So that's going to go into a combination in non-smell cell lung with our PD-1 vax. Now, I want to mention that in the PD-1 vaccines in lung cancer, we have patients that have been living for 18 months and they were given a few months to 
to live by their oncologists and they're able to come onto our study and live that long. So it's, uh, it's, it's quite remarkable. And then we're gonna go into a combination setting with that. With our oncarolytics on as well as our oncolytic viral therapies, they are fruiting data early and fast. And so I think within the next six months to next year, that's gonna read out a lot of interesting data. Um, I'm quite anxious to release or publish data across the preclinical studies with the myriad of combinations that we have with our oncarolytics, that's the CF33 with CD19, um, as early as at the end of this year with an FDA IND to go into the clinic. So you've got six months of publication, you've got the next 12 years of getting into the clinic and getting first patient on, and that's a such a new paradigm shift in how you can treat patients. So I think even getting that first patient on is gonna really um, rock the world and how we can treat cancer patients. And then our oncolytic viral therapies, we have ongoing patients that hopefully will read out quite soon. We're gonna open up another check back study and that's gonna be in multiple tumor types and not just in triple negative breast. Uh, our vaccinia study, the parental oncolytic virus will read out some um, you know, optimal biological dose and into a combination here soon in multiple tumor types. So I just see the next six months to 12 months to be pretty chock full of uh, clinical data. And I think that's what keeps the share, shareholders interested and the wider market of pharmaceutical um, uh, folks really interested in what we're doing. Leslie, I have to say, I just love your passion. It must be such a satisfying job, uh, not really a job, really a vocation uh, to do to try and cure and try and help patients survive uh, this terrible blight. So I, I, I'm, I'm in awe. I think it's fantastic. Well, I actually think that it's a it's a privilege and an honor to to serve this um, mm. cause for everyone. But, you know, Henry, it's still a job from day to day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are times when I'm just shuffling papers and thinking, wow. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it is something that I get up with, with a, with a huge honor and a responsibility. Mm. Um, but I think of my company as a just a feisty, scrappy, we're sort of a biotech that has to prove ourselves again and again. Um, we're small, we're in, you know, listed on the ASX. And so in this pool, we're a big company mm. in the U.S. We're sort of small, so we still need to prove ourselves. So we get up every morning thinking that we're a brand new biotech company and we need to do everything to serve uh, our patients and our product. And I guess that's a problem with a lot of Aussie companies. So have you ever sort of considered a, a listing in the U.S. to, to try and get that attention uh, from uh, from U.S. investors and give you some sort of, um, I'm not sure what the right word is, but you know, the U.S. investors would probably take a little Aussie company slightly more seriously, I guess, if it's a, a NASDAQ listed Aussie company as well. So you mean a footprint in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, we've been quite lucky that we've been able to raise money and get really noticed whilst we're here in the ASX. But sure, one day we will have to put on our big pants and go to the U.S. and get <laughs> a bigger footprint there. And I'm looking forward to it because I, I think we have 
um, meaningful products that we're taking into the clinic. We're starting to get really cutting edge, cutting edge data points that um, we will need to go into a broader audience for sure. And, and is that, uh, Leslie, is that kind of the end game for uh, for an emerging biotech to, to get swallowed by a big pharma at some stage or to do uh, some massive deal in terms of royalties or in terms of income stream? Is that is that the goal ultimately five, ten years down the track? It seems that way. It seems that way. I sort of develop all my products all the way to market because if I don't believe my product has a has a place in this world, then what other pharmaceutical company would, you know? So mm -hmm. I've learned from the biggest and the best. I've worked at GSK, Exelixis, Genentech, so I know how to develop a product. I've hired phenomenal, experienced people to help me get there. And so we my team and I really think about all our products as taking it all the way to market. And if you hear my passion, my team feels the same way. We sort of instill that in each other. Yeah. And a pharmaceutical company that we might uh, present to, I, I would hope that they feel as much passion and fervor in developing these products as we do. But if we don't believe it, they're mm. not going to believe it either. So. Mm. I keep focus on the fact that these products will one day see the light of day in the market. And that's how I like to develop it. In the meantime, if a big pharmaceutical company wants to come and, um, and help us develop it even further and get our products on the market, sure, great. And as far as you know, your cash position goes, you've obviously got some. Um, how, how's that um, position standing at the moment? We're great. Um, we last we reported we had ninety nine point nine. Oh, you were so you were so close, so close. I, I just I asked the my finance folks, can we just can I add uh, some yeah. money to the pot so that it looks yeah. that hundred million always looks so good. Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> we have people that are uh, are are exercising their options, and we've got more coming um, in 2024. So our cash balance is really strong. And that real that helps us realize our goals on getting the proof of concept studies for not only phase ones, but phase twos. And so we're all cashed up for those. So we're in a we're in a promising um, position. I've seen some research from uh, Roth Capital Partners, obviously, they're, they're a US uh, based company, uh, jo Jonathan Ashoff has done some uh, some pretty good work on you guys, and he's talking about um, this big sort of bump in revenue for you guys in um, 2031. Is is that a realistic kind of prospect? Do you think it's? I guess it's nine years away, isn't it? So, well, Dr. Jonathan Ashkoff is a is a is a brilliant analyst, mm. and so. Um, he does his own sort of algorithm as to what that market could look like. Now, he hasn't looked at oncolytic viral, he hasn't even um, put in the oncolytic viral therapies or oncolytics quite yet because he goes on data. Um, I think that as soon as we start putting these in patients and getting some early data, I think the, the valuation will greatly increase and i don't know he may move up those dates as skosh now th this is going out to uh, to our members and anyone else i guess that is, is interested in imaging which is fantastic but from from a layperson's point of view 
when 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 a layperson, when a, a retail investor or whatever is coming to look at a, a biotech, what what are the things that they should be looking for? What are the signs that the biotech, apart from the data and 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 being emotional, because we do get a bit emotional about biotechs, because we've all been touched by you know, the diseases that uh, you guys are trying to to cure or at least um, uh, conquer. Um, what what things should we be looking for rather than just getting blinded by the the personal um, influences that we have? Well, it's interesting that you say that because I've not been in the finance market for very long. And when I look to invest my money, biotech space is what I know. And so what I look for in a biotech company is something similar like ours in that we have cash in the bank and that uh, you've hired really experienced people to develop the product and you've got meaningful, experienced people uh, that understands the science to make it a reality. Uh, you have good people on the board that understands the direction of the company. And obviously, I have a phenomenal executive chairman and the founder of this company, Paul Hopper, who who knows this space and understands how to parlay science into something financial. So mm. all that, I think, makes for a good recipe for investment. Now, I cannot speak for the world market and what's happening external <laughs> to, to us, because as we saw just uh, a few months ago, things that were happening around the world really impacted the tech market, especially the biotech and also you know computer tech. But I, I would keep in mind the long haul, what is the goal of the company? What is their cash burn and balance? And then who do they've got to develop, the com- develop their products? Mm. And it seems that biotechs are starting to, I know that the market goes through fashions, but it does seem as if biotechs are coming of age to some extent. Um, Maybe it's because of technology and and AI and all the advances that have been made in computing uh, to analyse all the data. Is that a fair assessment? Do you think that we are going to see a bit of a a resurgence in the, the appetite for biotechs from the investing public? We've all been Googled and Facebooked and metas or whatever for, for so long. <laughs> but uh, do you think we're going to see the biotechs come back? Well, I'm an eternal optimist. <laughs> um, and I think biotechs is something people should invest in, right? Mm. I mean, we all have, we're getting older. I, it's, we have mortality here. And so cancer and other chronic diseases is what usually takes us. And if we do not pay attention to those markets, you're not going to get meaningful cures or meaningful therapies. And so to me, it's a worthwhile investment. So I hope that people are paying attention to biotech as well as tech. I mean, I don't know what I would do without computers and my iPhone. I mean, I hmm. feel like I'm going to lose it if I'm not <laughs> if I'm not on the phone, uh, understanding all the various different communication channels. But um, I think these are important things to invest in. So I don't think they're ever going to go away. Mm. Um, So I hope that they're coming back because this is what we need to be spending our money on. Mm. Now, Leslie, before we started and I pushed the record button, we were talking about other things. And I'm interested to hear how an art historian... (laughs) 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 ...is now... um, with imaging, I, I, I'm interested to hear that transition from uh, from from art history to uh, to 
the, the forefront, the, the cutting edge of oncology and, and uh, platform technologies in the space. Well, my husband sort of makes fun of me because I, uh, I still talk about art as if I'm still a curator of a museum, but that was literally uh, more than 25 years ago when I was a, a budding curator for a small museum. Um, it's just uh, it's it's just like any medicine. You find what you love, and you just get obsessed with it. And so I started off as a research assistant, and I loved it. I just fell in love with it, and then. When I was a young lady traveling to various different hospital sites, I just fell in love with that too. Just li- just hearing about the oncologists, hearing about the study coordinators' lives and the patient. Um, I got to view every patient on my studies charts and I just fell in love with it. And then I just got promoted and I didn't even want to and I was managing people. And then various different companies scouted me. Um, one of the things that... Uh, I think I do well is to keep my head down and really work and and getting um, I get obsessed with it. Uh, I, mm. I have to know something a hundred percent before I let somebody else do it. Mm. And so I just kept getting promoted, then promoted, and then um, I uh, noticed Imogene, and they were doing something very different from everyone else. And I've always been, I think maybe that art historian in me likes the spark of genius that comes in art mm. as, as it is in science. You need, I think, for the first person to ever look down a microscope and think that you could see something tiny, you'd have to have some ingenuity and some artistic uh, notion to even do that. Mm. And so just I just love the spark of genius that uh, imaging was doing. And um, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I'm a part of it. And I'm very fortunate that I've been able to grow it to where it is now. And hopefully it's on a world stage and, and we keep growing and bettering ourselves and evolving. Well, your, your passion for both art history and, and imaging uh, shows through. It's, uh, it's, it's fantastic because a lot of CEOs just go through the motions to some extent and but hearing someone with such passion in their voice. And, and we talked before we started about Caravaggio and Italy and all these things, and I know you're passionate about those as well, and it, it would be a, a fascinating um, hour or so. <laughs> I would love to talk about Renaissance and Baroque art till the cows come home. I think it's that spark of genius, again, happened quite uh, rapidly in, in that that Renaissance time. It's, it's an incredible time, isn't it? It's... I guess you know human beings in a couple of hundred years' time will look back at what we're experiencing now as this magical period where uh, social media and the technology and we're even heading towards the metaverse and all this sort of stuff is, is, is going to be um, massive, massive change. Well, the way I feel about Caravaggio and his just completely change of how we look at light in paintings is the way I feel about our on-carolytics. Mm. I think, you know, uh, I think even two years from now, people will say, my God, that is such a transformative therapy for cancer. Um, I just can't wait to put this in humans and prove the world how this ingenious invention is going to work. I have to ask this, Leslie, uh, as we're talking about history. I, I'm heading off to, uh, to Italy uh, very shortly. And I'm going to Florence. 
Is there any little secret in Florence, little little art treasure in Florence that is off the beaten track that I should go and visit? Right, we're, we're, I'm doing the the front of the line Dave tour, of course. Um, but um, is there uh, something there that I should just go? Wow, this is fantastic. Leslie put me onto this. It's just ah. the best, the best thing. Well, so I still love the Uffizi. Yeah. I think that has the. You will be shocked. You know, for those of uh, anyone in the audience has never been to Uffizi, being in front of the uh, the birth of Venus, you will be shocked at how huge it is and how grandiose and how each of the paint, stro paint strokes that you can see in person. Mm. You will feel the passion and the, you know. And did you know that, uh, that Walt Disney actually took that painting and the face of Venus is the one you see across many of the Disney characters because he just thought it was so beautiful along with Raphael. Um, so I, I still find new things every time I go to the Uffizi. And yeah. then for those of you that like shopping, there is a little no, less known outlet in Florence for Prada. So <laughs> uh -huh. well, I won't tell my wife that. <laughs> Get ready for your wallet to disappear. Yeah, <laughs> maybe uh, maybe I'll keep that one to myself just in case I I do something wrong. I'll suggest that when uh, when I've stuffed up something. But, uh, <laughs> but yes, no, thoroughly looking forward to that. Well, thank you so much, Leslie, for for taking the time today. It's been an absolute pleasure and a delight to chat to you. Uh, we could talk about art history, Caravaggio and, and Italian Renaissance painting, I suspect, for some time, but uh, it's been delightful. And I wish you and Imogene uh, the most success you possibly can have because uh, it's, it's a noble cause. And I think we all would uh, like to see an end to this horrible disease. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I'm happy to talk about science. I'm happy to talk about art anytime you want. Great. Thank Leslie, thank you very much. Enjoy.